We are in Matthew chapter 2 still, verses 16 to 18, just a couple verses. Uh, last week, we also just did a couple verses. We talked mainly about what it means that Jesus is the Son uh, and what it means that he has come to be and represent the true Israel, to be the people of God, so to speak. Uh, what it means uh, that he's the, father, he's the son of the Father and how we can become also sons and daughters of the Father and what a wonderful privilege that is. Uh, our passage this morning is much darker in its tone, uh, in its point. Uh, there are a couple things in here that may be quite painful for some of us, uh, maybe offensive even, uh, and I just want you to know that I would be happy to talk with you afterwards if you have any questions or concerns. Um, just let me know. Let's read Matthew chapter 2. Verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your mercy is new every morning for us, uh, not just for us as your servants, as your subjects, but us as your children. Thank you, Father, that you provide for us so generously that even when the darkness seems overwhelming, and impossible to understand, you remain just as good and as kind and as generous as you have always been and you always will be. Help us to remember who you are even when we suffer through dark times in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've been on, for the last year or so, I've been on something of a a Russian-Soviet kick in terms of reading and studying and trying to learn more, uh, mainly about communism and uh, what happened in Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, Part of that is renewing an interest in um, the author Dostoevsky, who was before the communist revolution, but uh, talked about a lot of the things uh, that would lead to it. There's a famous scene in his book, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, where the book's about these three brothers. Uh, One of them is an atheist. Uh, One of them is an earnest young Christian. There's a famous scene towards the beginning where the atheist brother is angrily berating the Christian brother about how God could possibly allow children to suffer abuse. Uh, In that scene, the brother points out all these horrific events, uh, all these horrific situations that children had gone through. All of those situations were actual things that had happened in Dostoevsky's lifetime. He pulled all of them out of his own newspapers. Um, I thought about telling you about a couple of them, but they are so horrible, um, I thought I would just leave it at that. Um, The brother says, the the atheist brother who's pointing to these things and saying, how could God allow these things? He says that if this um, is what, if this, a world like this, a world with so much suffering, particularly suffering among the innocent, if a world like that is what the road to heaven and the road to redemption looks like, uh, what he calls God's price of admission, he says that he wants nothing to do with God. Uh, He says this, he says, it's not that I don't accept God. I just most respectfully return him the ticket. Our passage this morning describes a similarly horrific scene related to the infancy of Jesus. You have Herod, King Herod, slaughtering little boys. 
this is, like in Dostoevsky, this is the kind of evil that motivates many people then and now to angrily and despairingly seek to return God his ticket. Uh, this story in front of us this morning describes the murder of probably what was about 20 boys, maybe 12 to 20 little boys. Uh, it happened a long time ago. That may not sound like many children. And, and it was in a time and a place very different from ours. And so it might be easy to distance ourselves from it. But just consider what this would have been like if this was your son or your brother or your cousin or your grandson or your neighbor. It's almost unspeakable, even with a few seconds of considering it. The story and the entire Bible offers no simple or easy explanations for evil. Uh, but one thing I'd like to show you today is that in the life of God's Son, Jesus, we can find real redemption, real hope, beyond the real trauma of evil. And so first, let's consider Herod's wrath. Herod's wrath. Look at verse 16 there. Herod realizes that he's been tricked by the Magi, tricked by these wise men. Remember the story a couple weeks ago? He, they come and they say, hey, we know that there's a, a Messiah somewhere around here. Would you tell us where he is exactly so we can go worship him? And Herod gets very worried and paranoid and he says, oh, wow, really, tell me, when did you hear about this? And, oh, where is he? Uh, come back here and tell me when you find him. I also want to come worship him. Um, but we figure out later as the story goes on that Herod has something very dark in mind. Uh, Herod now realizes that he's been tricked by these magi. They know not to go back to him. Uh, God actually tells them, don't go back to him. Go back a different way. Uh, they hear of his plot. They refuse to return as he had commanded them. And so his embarrassment and his shame, his frustration about being tricked, quickly turns to rage. And so he sends his goons to kill any boys in and around the little town of Bethlehem who might possibly be this supposed Messiah. Uh, Herod had been appointed king by his Roman overlords. And so in his mind, there can be no other king, even if it means trampling on the lives of the innocent. Uh, Herod, we know from other sources outside the Bible, was infamous for his cruelty and for his paranoia, particularly toward the end of his life, which is where we're at now with Jesus being born. Herod, before this point, had not only killed three of his own sons, but he had also killed one of his brothers-in-law. He'd also killed one of his fathers-in-law. He even killed his favorite wife, and he had 10 of them. Herod was famous for building these spectacular buildings, uh, this amazing infrastructure, all of these cities around the Roman province of Judea. <clears throat> He's the one who did this incredible, massive renovation of the Jewish temple, um, which was pretty pathetic uh, initially, but then Herod made it into what was probably the largest temple in the ancient world. But even so, in spite of all these great projects he did, all this money that he threw around to make people like him, he remained widely hated by the Jewish people. Uh, Herod uh, commanded that before he, he, before he died, he said, when I die one day, um, I want you all to go out and kill a bunch of the Jewish leaders so that it, somebody will at least be sad uh, instead of rejoicing when I die. Uh, the Roman emperor who had made him the king of Judea, Augustus, said that it would be better to be his pig than his son. And so this slaughtering of little boys in Bethlehem is par for the course for a ghoul like him. 
He views these children as dispensable. He views them as mere stepping stones on the way to what was probably a very well-intentioned goal of preserving his own autonomy and extending his own rule. If you know much about the history of the 20th century, you know that there were similar dynamics, similar motivations at play uh, with things not only like earlier, like the transatlantic slave trade, but also more recently with things like the gulags uh, of Lenin, the gas chambers of the Nazis, the famines of Stalin and of Mao. Treating people as dispensable, as subhuman, inconvenient obstacles that are blocking my way, that are blocking our way as a society to a bright and perfect future. For us today, I think the closest parallel to Herod's slaughter of these children is abortion. In 2019, 900,000 unborn people were aborted. Uh, Since 1973, something like 60 million of them have been killed, mostly among the poor. Uh, In spite of a lot of hand-waving today that you might hear about, about how they really are subhuman, they're maybe not really people, it's more clear than ever, certainly a lot more clear than it was in the early 70s, that from conception, the unborn really are human, uh, that they really are people. No matter how big they are, no matter where they're located, no matter what they look like, no matter how needy and dependent they might be. Uh, But abortion is also something of a sacrament for the much larger sexual revolution that our society's gone through for the last 50 years. It's a grisly means of ensuring personal autonomy and comfort and freedom. But as with Herod, the weakness of the babies does not excuse the horror of what's being done to them. It actually underscores it. It also underscores, this is a bit of a side point, it underscores also the horror of what's being done to them, underscores the depth of God's mercy and grace toward anybody who's ever had an abortion or encouraged an abortion or pressured someone to get an abortion or paid for an abortion. It underscores the depth of God's mercy toward anybody who's ever done any of those things when they put their trust in Jesus. You really are forgiven. Some of you have done these things. You're forgiven trust in Jesus. God's mercy is much deeper than our sin. Herod, like many people today, insisted on his own interests, on his own rights, on his own plan, even when it meant sacrificing children on the altar of his own desires. But one of the most important things for us to understand today, if you're visiting today, uh, I'm not ashamed of what the Bible says about the poor and the weak and how to treat them. Uh, But if you're visiting, you should know that this isn't something that I bang on about all the time. Um, I'm very self-consciously not trying to do culture war stuff. I know this is a very politically loaded topic. Uh, And so I want you also to hear that one of the most important things for us to understand today is that in a very real sense, we're all Herod. In a very real sense, we are all Herod. We are all the self-justifying murderer. Deep down, we really are not different from him, from Hitler, or from Margaret Sanger. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, we'll get to this in a few weeks, Matthew 5, Jesus says that anger and contempt and bitterness and irritation, all those things, Jesus says, are really just forms of murder. They are, of course, much less serious in their immediate effects, 
But Jesus says at the heart level, they are really just stations along the same set of tracks. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that all people, not just certain groups of people, not just people who have done certain things, Paul says all people are under the power and the control of sin. He says that nobody is righteous. He says that God's law puts a stop to everybody's excuses. It puts a stop to all kinds of self-justification. It's a problem for all of us. As part of my Russian and Soviet kick, I've been reading the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, this is written by a guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's kind of a, it's a strange book in a lot of ways. It's sort of a meditation, sort of a memoir, sort of a history about his time that he spent in the Soviet concentration camps, the Gulags. Uh, the third chapter of it, uh, pretty early on in the book, is all about how they would interrogate you when you got arrested. Usually, you got arrested for nothing because they had to fill quotas. They had to arrest so many people, and they would just find people to arrest. And so in this chapter, he lists 31 different forms of torture they would use to get you to confess to something that you didn't do or to get you to confess that your family did things they didn't do. And so he goes through 31 of these things, and they're all pretty horrific. And then he stops really abruptly, and he says, Is there anything more to enumerate? What won't idle, well-fed, unfeeling people invent? And then his next chapter, which ends pretty quickly, which starts pretty quickly after this, he has a chapter on torture, and then he has a chapter on the interrogators themselves. Why did they do this? How did it happen? He says this in that chapter. Where did this wolf tribe, where, where did this wolf tribe appear from among our people? Does it really stem from our own roots, our own blood? It is our own. And just so we don't go around flaunting too proudly the white mantle of the just, let everyone ask himself, if my life had turned out differently, might I myself not have become just such an executioner? It is a dreadful question if one really answers it honestly. And then a couple pages later, Solzhenitsyn gives this. This is the most famous passage in the whole book. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And so you see... His point. You see the point today. Herod is us. We're Herod. In Herod's quest for power and control, no matter what it costs other people, we see here the heart of sin. A fatal disease, a cruel taskmaster, a jealous mistress, a walking death that afflicts all human beings that has always afflicted human beings from the very beginning. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, that before being rescued by Jesus, all people are living in the domain of darkness. That means you are under the power and the control and the authority of darkness. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that outside of Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Not injured, not a little weak, not a little tired. He says you're dead. 
And before Christ rescues us, before he grabs hold of us, there's an extent to which you can see the horror and the destruction of your own sin. But deep down, outside of Christ, people want to be sin's slaves. Paul says in Romans 6 that there is nobody who is not an obedient slave to something. Bob Dylan said you have to serve someone. Paul says you are either an obedient slave of sin or you are an obedient slave of righteousness. And while we are totally culpable for our own sin, our own evil, we are also not immune from the influence and the manipulation of others. I don't just mean other individual people, although that's true. Think of like, you know, people peer pressuring you to do something you shouldn't do. Uh, But also the influence and the manipulation of your own families, your companies, your cultures, your ancestors even. Hundreds of years ago, these these patterns of of behavior and thought that we just kind of pick up and take for granted. And so we're influenced by all kinds of very complicated things, very kinds of evil things. Uh, But even beyond that, the Bible says that we are even under the influence and sometimes even the power of personal demonic beings. I realize that sounds kind of weird to people living today, but the Bible says this over and over again. You'll see one of the primary aspects of Jesus' ministry was exercising demons. The first thing that Jesus does after his baptism, even before he calls his disciples to himself, is he goes out into the wilderness and battles with Satan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that those who cannot see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus can't do that because their minds have been blinded by what he calls the God of this world, by Satan. Christians have been freed from the domination of Satan, but even so, Christians continue to battle against him, to battle against his forces all around us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, that Christians have to be prepared to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's probably describing some kind of complicated hierarchy of spiritual beings all over the place. And so part of what we're seeing in this story about Herod Part of what we're seeing is that through Herod, the devil is raging against Jesus. He's even raging against the people who happen to be associated with Jesus, happen to be born at roughly the same time in roughly the same place. Even from the beginning of Jesus' life, the devil is after him, throwing everything he has at him, everything at those around him. And so that's the wrath of Herod. But look at verse 18, where you hear about the tears of Rachel. The tears of Rachel. Matthew says that when Herod murdered these little boys, it fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We've seen in the last couple weeks, Matthew repeatedly quoting the Old Testament about various aspects of Jesus' life and identity. But this one is a bit strange. This one you really have to puzzle over. Jeremiah uh, was a prophet who spoke to the people of Judah in the run-up to their exile into Babylon. This is about 600 years before Jesus is born. 
So Jeremiah is speaking to the the Jewish people right before they get exiled away to Babylon. Uh, The verse that Matthew quotes here comes in Jeremiah chapter 31, which is right in the middle of what we call Jeremiah's book of comfort. This is one of those sections in the Old Testament uh, where if you're like me, you get really excited and you highlight a bunch because a lot of it's really positive and encouraging. There's a lot of doom and gloom around it. This is in one of those really exciting sections with a lot of promises. Uh, This section reiterates that the exile to Babylon is God's punishment on Israel for the ways that they have defiantly and repeatedly lived against him, even though he kept warning them and warning them and trying to help them. But eventually he said, okay, fine, I'm done warning you. You can go away to exile. But the thrust of these chapters, the thrust of this section in Jeremiah is God's promise to bring his people home, to restore them back even though they don't deserve it. One of the points there is that God is totally in charge of what's happening to them. As horrible as it is, it's not outside of God's plan. But God also is emphasizing that I'm also in charge of what's going to happen to you. Uh, The best part of these chapters is that God says, I have a plan to make a new covenant with you, a new alliance, a new agreement, a new relationship, a covenant in which the people of Israel are going to have transformed hearts that actually want to obey God, that actually want to follow Him. And in that way, it's going to be very different than the old covenant from Mount Sinai, which, as we heard about last week, was mainly characterized by Israel continuing to be paralyzed and suffocated by the same evil and sinful hearts that all people wrestle with. But right in the middle of all these promises about the future, the new covenant, this is going to be so great, I'm going to change your hearts, I'm going to bring you home. Right in the middle of all those promises, you have this heartbreaking verse. The haunting sound of a mother's bitter weeping over what's going on in the present. This town called Ramah is near Jerusalem, it's near Bethlehem. Uh, and you learn in Jeremiah chapter 40 that the town of Ramah was like the staging area that the Babylonians used to prepare everybody to go off into exile. This is where they're gathering everybody before they marched them off to the east. Jeremiah himself was gathered there, prepared to go away. And so the sound of maternal sobbing in Ramah is coming from Rachel. Uh, Rachel is from an earlier time in the story of the Bible. She was one of Jacob's wives in Genesis. She had died while giving birth to Benjamin right in this area, and so she was buried somewhere in the vicinity of Ramah. And so it's like Jeremiah is saying that Mother Rachel, from way back when, who died nearby here giving birth to her last child, it's like Mother Rachel is sobbing from the grave as she watches her beloved children gathered together forced off into exile, which, of course, is a kind of death. You notice that? It says she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is not just an exciting move for them. This is not just a new opportunity. This is death. This is like not existing anymore when you leave the promised land. And so now we're jumping all over history. Now Matthew is drawing us back to Jeremiah as Jeremiah looks back to Rachel. And Matthew is saying that with the anguish of these bereaved mothers in Bethlehem, the little boys that got killed, with their anguish, the same kind of thing is happening that happened in Jeremiah's day. 
Now, Jeremiah, when you go back and read that passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah does not seem to be predicting Herod's slaughter of these little boys in any kind of straightforward way. But in that verse from Jeremiah, Matthew is hearing a theological echo of what happened in Jeremiah's day. And so Matthew is saying to us now, he's saying, Mother Rachel is still weeping. Mother Rachel is still weeping for the suffering of her people. Herod's slaughter of these babies is a real grief. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that as Christians, um, the suffering of this present life, even though we have what he calls the first fruit of the Spirit, the suffering of this present life, Paul says, cause us to groan inwardly. To groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul even says that the entire creation itself, the whole world around us, is groaning. He says the trees and the oceans and the animals, they too are in what he calls the bondage to decay. Evil is a parasitic force corrupting everything in us, corrupting everything around us. And with Rachel, it should cause us to weep. It is a real grief. Rachel is weeping over the slaughter of these innocent babies then and now. The Bible offers no neat, no simple solution to evil. The Bible does not ever attempt to sanitize the horror and the tragedy of this world. The Bible does not simply say to us, it's for the best. It does not simply say, this too shall pass. It does not say to us, yin and yang. There is a profound mystery to evil. One of the greatest mysteries of all of existence. One of the greatest mysteries in the Bible. Why is there evil? How could God allow it? How can it exist in his world? The Bible does not seek to evade this profound mystery and how difficult it is. But in places like Job, places like the Psalms, places like Romans 9 to 11, the Bible, while not evading it, admits it. The Bible wrestles with it over and over and over again. It says, this is real grief. And over and over and over again, the Bible calls us to lament it, to grieve over it. But while lament is central to the life of faith, maybe some of us need to be reminded of that today, that part of being a Christian in this world means lamenting. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian if you're sad. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian if you're grieving the horrible things that are happening to you and happening in this world. While lament is central to the life of faith, it also does not have the final word. Back in Jeremiah chapter 31, Right after this verse about Mother Rachel weeping as she sees the Jewish people going off into exile, the very next verse, God tells her to stop weeping. Did you notice that when Adam read it earlier? He says, stop weeping. It's not because God's saying, well, it's not so bad. Just get over it. You know, there's a lot of people suffering in the world. You know, what if your life was like theirs? That's not what's going on. Uh, but when God tells her, stop weeping, it's because of what's coming it's because of the future. It's because God is ruling over all things, even evil. 
The very next verse, he says, keep your voice from weeping. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, and your children shall come back to their country. And so God is saying to Rachel, in a sense, I will give you back everything you've lost and more. It's not a solution. It's not a neat geometric proof that Jeremiah is giving the people and saying, oh, here, now you don't have to be sad anymore. I've got a theological proof for you. That's not what's going on. It's not a solution, but it's a consolation. It's a consolation in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief. It's a comfort for real pain. It's a kind of zooming out to see the bigger picture, to see who God is and what he's ultimately up to. Because this is the bigger picture on evil. The bigger picture on evil is that God hates it. God is personally and naturally and essentially opposed to it with all of his power, all of his glory. And so that's how you move from Herod's wrath through Rachel's tears to God's wrath. God's wrath. A lot of people think this idea that God is angry or that God is wrathful is something to be embarrassed about or something to laugh off, something ridiculous. But God's wrath is God's good answer to the horror of evil. God is not shrugging his shoulders at evil. God is not watching the injustice of the world and saying, well, I did what I could. Can't really do anything about this. Sorry, guys. I'm kind of sad too. God is not threatened by evil. Evil is not some force alongside of God wrestling for control of the universe. But rather, the Bible tells us that God burns against evil with unquenchable fury. You hear in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, that Herod soon died, which is in itself an act of God's judgment, though it's only a small one compared to what was waiting for Herod beyond the grave. But even the outrageousness of what Herod did to the babies is actually nothing compared to how outrageous and offensive it is for one of God's creatures to rebel against him with even the smallest sin. Because God is not just a bigger version of us, but something infinitely higher than us, infinitely purer than us, even the littlest sin is far more outrageous, far more offensive than all human evil and all human injustice piled together. That's the idea behind Jesus' constant teaching that you must, must, must forgive your enemies. Why? Jesus says, because if you know how much God has forgiven you, of course you'll forgive other people, no matter what they do to you, no matter how often they do it. What you have done to God is far more serious than what anybody has ever done to you. And that's much of the point of Jeremiah chapter 31. That Israel's and our greatest problem is not the Babylonians. It's not exile. It's not demonic forces. It's not suffering. It's not poverty. It's not COVID. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Joe Biden. Your greatest problem is your sin. Your greatest problem is your sin. The central piece of the new covenant that Jeremiah promised is that God transforms our hearts 
and forgives us for everything that we've ever done, everything that we ever will do. My sinfulness is what makes it appropriate and even right, even good, for God to condemn me. But in Jesus, God is doing something about my sin. And in doing so, God is delivering me from His own wrath, His own hatred toward evil. And so that takes you from Herod's wrath through Rachel's tears to God's wrath and now finally to Jesus' tears. Jesus' tears. There's something really jarring about this story. Uh, Some of us have heard this story a bunch of times in our lives. But when you stop and think about it, uh, there's something very jarring about Jesus being spared even though all these little boys aren't. Why didn't God do a miracle for them? Why didn't God stop the goons from killing them? God could have done that if he wanted to. He doesn't do it. These little kids, their families, they're all sucked in to the vortex of Herod's satanic hatred for God's Messiah. But part of what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is preserved here so that he would not be preserved later. Jesus didn't die in this way because God has destined him to die another way, a better way. Not under Herod's wrath, but under God's wrath. This is why Jesus, uh, unlike many Christian martyrs, unlike many Jewish martyrs who faced much worse deaths than Jesus did with all kinds of peace and even joy, unlike all of them, this is why Jesus, uh, as he approached his own death in the Garden of Gethsemane, was overwhelmed with agony. It's why Jesus kept falling on the ground, weeping and weeping and weeping, so stressed out, so intense, that even blood is coming out of his head. Why isn't Jesus in so much misery? Because he knows what's coming on the cross. He's pleading there in the garden, Father, is there any other way to save these people other than doing the cross? Is there any other way Because he knows that on the cross he's going to face God's judgment. And yet Jesus says, not my will, let yours be done. Joseph was told to name him Jesus because the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And Jesus was going to save his people from their sins. But the way that Jesus saves us from our sins is not by... Uh, sending good vibes our way, not by feeling good about us and winking at us and smiling at us and saying, oh, never mind, it's all okay. The way that Jesus saves us from our sins is by suffering under God's judgment for our sins. Jesus never disobeyed. He never slighted God in any kind of way at all. But it's not just that Jesus was a perfect man, even though he was a perfect man. It's also that Jesus was perfect God. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God among us. And so as man and as God, Jesus' death on the cross is able to pay the full human penalty for sin to the infinitely holy God who hates evil and sin with all of his being. As God and as man, Jesus is therefore able to pay the full penalty of anybody who trusts in him. On the cross, Jesus is bearing God's wrath against sin and evil. But in doing so, he's also triumphing. 
He's defeating every evil power. He's overcoming every evil distortion of God's creation. Paul makes it clear in Colossians chapter 2 that when Jesus went to the cross, when he took our sins with him to the cross and thereby ensured our forgiveness, he was also disarming, Paul says. He was disarming every weapon of the devil so that the devil has no more power, has no more ability to harm you. And then Jesus' resurrection from the dead a couple days later is God's proof that he really has forgiven us, that he really has disarmed the devil. It's, the resurrection itself is like a down payment on the restoration and the redemption to come when God will get rid of all evil and all sin out of the world. And so evil, while it's still profoundly grievous and painful and lamentable, ultimately evil has been rendered powerless. It can't touch you anymore if you believe in Jesus. It's painful. It's not good. We don't say, oh, it's okay, get over it. Jesus is coming back. But ultimately speaking, in the grand scheme of things, it has no power over you. And so in pointing us from the horror of Herod to the lament of Rachel, this passage also points us to the wrath of God falling on his beloved son in our place. God hates evil so much. God is so violently opposed to it that he would give up his own beloved son Jesus to suffer its consequences so that you wouldn't have to. There is real hope beyond the trauma of evil and sin. No matter how powerful, no matter how insurmountable they may seem to you now. Let's pray. Father, you remain a good and generous God in the midst of so much suffering, so much trauma, so much abuse, so much injustice all over the world, all through its history. Uh, Father, you, you love us, even though, if we're being honest, we know uh, that if our lives had turned out differently, uh, that we would be torturing other people. We would be trampling upon them, abusing them and using them, no matter what it costs them. Father, help us to see the depth of our sin. Help us to see, even as, as those who believe in you, uh, how much evil still resides in the dark corners of our lives and our hearts. But even more than that, Father, show us the depth of your mercy and your love. You knew about all those dark places in our hearts, and yet you send Jesus anyways to suffer the consequences for them. Help us to see in your judgment poured out on Jesus on the cross the depth of your love. And as we see that, Father, help us to face evil and suffering and injustice uh, not with apathy, not with Pollyanna, rosy-eyed glasses, but help us to face it with bravery and with courage and with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.